pretty convinced you can divide humanity into two categories. There's really two types of people in this world. There's beach people and there's mountain people. Uh, there's people who love to go to the mountains, are recharged by being in the grandeur of God's creation. And then there's people that love sitting in the sand, in the warmth, in the sun, listening to the waves crash or jumping in the ocean and going for a swim. So let's just do a quick survey. How many of you would say that you are mountain people? Mountain people, okay? We live in Colorado, your wives, okay? How many of you would say you're beach people? Okay, these are my people. How many would you say you're both, that you don't want to choose? Okay, that's expensive real estate, just telling you. Yeah, I am, and, and I, you know, I hesitate to admit this in a Colorado congregation, but I am a beach person. I love the beach. And I grew up, I grew up in Southern California, and I grew up going to the beach, and some of my favorite memories with my family are all of us loading into our orange Volkswagen van and driving down to the beach with its brown vinyl seats that you could sweep out after a day at the beach to the glory of God, that you could sweep out and spending a day on the beach. In fact, some of my favorite memories with my mom are, are her taking us three kids to the beach and stopping at Taco Bell on the way there and going to the beach and sitting on my towel and eating Taco Bell, if there is a better day out there, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Judge me if you will. You know you're thinking, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I love it. I, I love that feeling of, of catching a wave where you're not quite sure until you're out in front of it if, if you've caught the wave or if the wave's caught you. I love the feeling of diving under waves and feeling their power just breaking over me. There's something about that that just stirs my soul. It, it's really fascinating if you were to just look at it objectively, that, that a wave is a collection of little drops or molecules of water. If you were to isolate one of those molecules of water, you couldn't even see it with a naked eye. And yet you have a wave like this that forms and in one cubic meter, you have one ton of water moving towards you. In a wave like this, let's say it's 20 feet long and roughly 10 feet high, you have 410 tons of water moving towards you, which is roughly 315 Volkswagen bucks. It's a lot of water, is it not? You don't seem as impressed with that as I am. I've just been hit by that. It's impressive. It's impressive. It's interesting, though. One molecule you could never even see, but a ton of them put together creates a, a mass, creates a movement, creates something that you, you want to get out of the way of. It's interesting. If you were to do the scientific analysis of what creates a wave, there's really three things. One is it's, it's wind that blows along the surface of the ocean, sometimes hundreds of miles away from where the wave actually breaks. It's the tides, and the, the gravitational pull of the moon tugging at the water on the surface of the earth. I mean, just crazy, right? And then sometimes it's an earthquake that'll rumble underneath the surface just a little bit and, and create these, these waves that start to crash into shore that you can ride, but one molecule of water you can't even see, but a wave you want to get out of the way of. It's interesting because we see waves in our culture too, don't we? 
We, we see things that start small, and then they grow into movements. As a father of elementary school students, I've seen waves this year. It's fascinating to do a social experiment in elementary schools, right? Here's the waves that I've seen break this year at running elementary school. First wave was the tetherball wave. I mean, everybody was playing tetherball. Started small, everybody has a tetherball pole in their backyard now. If you have a second grader, you have a tetherball pole. Or you wish you did, okay? Second wave that broke this year, Pokemon cards. I don't get it. I, they're back. We're sorry, okay? Because this time it's our fault, right? Yeah, they're back. They're back. Third wave, pogo sticks. I don't know. But my second-year-old son had to have a pogo stick, and so we got him a pogo stick, and he's pretty remarkable at the pogo stick. Just yesterday, he was helping to take in groceries from the car, which, I mean, the stars aligned. It wasn't crazy, but he was doing it on his pogo stick. (laughs) No arms, just bouncing into the house. I'm like, that's impressed. Bravo, right? Bravo. And the last one that's sweeping across elementary schools now, any guesses? Fidget spinners, you nailed it. You are, yes, we are kindred spirits. We're in the same, right. Yeah, so kids now spinning things on their fingers, I don't know. I just know it's a wave and it'll break. Praise be to God. I think all of us, whether we follow the way of Jesus or not, I think all of us have this longing to be a part of a wave. We know somewhere deep down inside that our lives weren't meant to just be one little isolated molecule that you can't see with the naked eye, but that we were designed to be a part of something bigger, something a little bit more cosmic, something a little bit more vast, something that, that makes a difference in our world, and we've seen that happen in a number of different ways in our culture, in our time. In fact, just this last week, Uh, we celebrated the anniversary of Brown versus the Board of Education, where Olivia Brown, a a mother of uh, a daughter, said to the school board in Topeka, Kansas, we can't have this, um, if we have one color skin, we go to one school, and if we have another color skin, we go to a different school, and public education should involve everybody, every race, every skin color, every tribe, every name, that, that everybody should be able to go to their local school. And so in 1954, May 17th, 1954, Olivia Brown won her case against the Board of Education, and segregation in schools was no longer constitutionally allowed. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. A number of years later, a number of years later, August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood up, and, and this is where really where the civil rights movement sort of started to gain its traction, but um, August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stands up and he delivers his speech, I have a dream. I have a dream, and, and that dream started to, to create this, it was this wind that blew across the surface of the water, and it started to create this wave, this really beautiful, really good wave. That's the way movements start. A lot of times they don't start with a plan, they start with a dream. A lot of times they start with with a pain of saying that the world can't continue to to be like this. We can't continue to operate like this. There's something bigger, there's something better. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a wave. 
I don't just want to be a little molecule, independent. I, I, want to be, I want to be a part of a wave. I want to be a part of something bigger. And you know what's beautiful about that? Will you look up at me for a moment? That's wired into our veins as human beings. It's imprinted on our DNA to be a part of something bigger. In the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 12, God says to a man named Abram, he says to him, Abram, I will bless you. I'm going to bless you. And through you, through you, Abram, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. But through you, every nation of the world will be blessed. Did you know that your God is into creating waves? Waves of goodness, waves of blessing that culminate in Jesus and then are, are carried by his church. It's, it's deeply woven into who we are as human beings. And this story that we've been looking at and studying over the last few weeks in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 14, in fact, if you have a Bible, turn there with me, is a story about waves. It's a story not just about influence, one person on another, but it's a story about movement, a movement of a nation from one place to another. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, this will be a review, but that's okay. Um, we need to get back into the story because the nation of Israel is on one side of a valley and the Philistines are on the other side of a valley. The Philistines are the kings of iron in this time and iron works and, and, and weaponry and swords. And the Israelites have two weapons to their name. Saul has a sword. Jonathan has a sword. Saul's hiding out away from the battle. And Jonathan just gets this sense like, we can't just continue to sit here and hope. We've got to step into the gap, into, the, into risk, into the unknown, and see what God will do. And we said in week one that Jonathan makes this choice to, to live, not just to exist. And he steps into this place of faith, and we define the place of faith of confidence that God can, not certainty that God will. That that's what faith is. And he goes in, and he, he steps into the battle, and people start to join in. It's this influence that turns into a movement. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 20, listen to what the scriptures say. This is following right after Saul has gotten the ark of God and he's praying, but the time for praying comes to an end and the time for acting is at hand. And it says, and then Saul, verse 20, and all the people who were with him, they rallied and they went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was great confusion. And now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into their camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So here's what they're saying. The Israelites that had traded their Israelite army gear in for Philistine army gear because they had way more gear, they're going, hey, we're back on the Israelite side. We're, we're back on the side of, of our, our country, our home, our hopes, our dreams. The, 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 the traitors, the, the Benedict Arnolds, if you will, of their army are gathering. Verse 22. And likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, and they too followed hard after them into the battle. What starts with one person, one man, 
and a hope or a dream and a willingness to step in, but a question mark, will God act, grows into a nation on the move. And notice this movement, this, this movement of Israel, this, this wave that God is gathering. Here's what it consists of. Here's who it consists of. People who have left, people who have said, this isn't my tribe anymore, people who have, who have messed up. Can you imagine seeing somebody come back to the front line of battle who you saw go away and was fighting against you? People who are cowering in fear. People who had no hope, no faith that God would move and that God would work. These are the people that God uses to birth this movement. You know why that's beautiful? It's because it's not just a story of Israel, it's a story of the gospel. The gospel is a story of God taking people with guilt and shame in their past. It's a story of God taking people who are broken. It's a story of God taking people who don't have it all together. They're not the people that were on the front line saying, here I am, follow me. There are people who are going, God, we have no clue how you could show up, and if we could switch to the other team, we would, or maybe we even did for a while. And it's him using those people to create a wave in his world that's for his glory and his good. Friends, this is the gospel. Have you failed? Join in. Are you running on empty? Join in. Do you have regrets? Do you have guilt? Do you have shame? Come and sing along. Because this wave includes you. And the wave or the movement of God is the way that he transforms his world. See, friends, living together, living together, not, not isolated molecules that you can't even see with the naked eye, but living together in kingdom rhythms creates kingdom waves, creates waves of God's goodness, his mercy, his glory that extend far beyond the walls of any church, but go to the very ends of his great globe. It's interesting because Jesus told a parable when he was teaching that pointed to this reality. And here's what he said. He said he put another parable before him. This is Matthew in Matthew 13 speaking of the words of Jesus. And Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, Jesus said, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and can make their nests in its branches. Notice what Jesus is saying. It starts small like one little molecule, one little seed, and it continues to grow and continues to flourish. And certainly, the early church, they saw this happen. It started with a few followers. It turned into 120 in an upper room. The spirit descended, and then from there, it started to take on an energy of its own. Right? 3,000 people are added to the church, to the followers of Jesus' number in one day. And then it says, as they broke bread as they prayed, as they sought the Lord, as they tried to be disciples and followed after him, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What's interesting about this picture Jesus paints, it starts small, it grows massive. It's like a wave. But it's a wave of 
of good. See, any kingdom wave is a wave that benefits everybody around. Notice that they're not making the birds sign a statement of faith before they come and get in the tree branches. Right? This, is, this is a common good, the kingdom of God. Sure, it is unique, but it provides respite. It provides refuge for anybody that would want to come under its branches. It's for the good of everybody. This is the movement, the wave of the kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that kind of wave. Who's with me? Anyway, I mean, just, yeah, that, that's what I want to be a part of. And it's interesting the way that this passage of Scripture starts to draw out what's fundamentally necessary for movements to become reality. And I want to just point out three things that stand out to me in this passage about the way that God birthed this movement in Israel and the way that he birthed movement in and through us. Here's the way it starts. Here's the way it starts. One day, verse 1, Jonathan said to the son of Saul, to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. He didn't tell his father. We've talked about the Philistines all throughout this series, but the Philistines were an absolutely brutal people. If you were to do a study of the word Philistine or the people Philistines throughout the scriptures, here's what you would become aware of really quick. They are defined by their idolatry, they're defined by their pagan worship, but specifically, the Philistines are defined in the scriptures by the fact that they worship their deities by sacrificing their kids, specifically by way of fire. And so God, in his divine wisdom and through the nation of Israel, they're in conflict. The good of the nation of Israel is in conflict with this evil. And any movement needs an enemy. Any movement needs something to fight. And so the foundation of movement is first an enemy to fight. An enemy to fight. So if Israel's enemy was the Philistines, my hope is you're asking the question who is our enemy? That's a really important question. In fact, will you report, will you just say that back to me? Just say that's a really important question. Yeah, it is. I agree with you. It's a really important question, and here's why. Because if we fight the wrong battle, we may win the wrong war, but it won't really matter. Because the battle, the enemy that we're fighting, determines the war that eventually will either win or will be defeated in. And if we identify the wrong enemy, we will fight the wrong war. War, and I think we've been fighting the wrong war for too long. So, the question I want to wrestle with is who did the early church view as their enemy? Well, the Apostle Paul makes that pretty clear in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, as he writes to the church at Ephesus. Here's what he says He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, which is great news for everybody who feels a little bit weak. That's for free. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not your enemy. 
You've never laid eyes on a person who was your enemy. And maybe they were wearing a different uniform or maybe they had on a different sash or hat or, but they weren't your enemy. Not according to the Apostle Paul. And he could have said, listen, who's our enemy? Rome is our enemy. Because they are crucifying people left and right. And they take our teachers and they take followers of the way of Jesus and they pin them to crosses just like they did to our leader. He goes, no, that's not, that's not the battle. The battle is against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the, say it with me, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's, he goes, that's the battle. That's the battle. We don't fight against people. We don't fight against people who believe differently than we do. We don't fight against people who have a different color skin or a different dialect or, or fight for a different army. That's not the battle the church is called to fight. We've got to think bigger than that. Because if we fight the wrong battle, if we choose the wrong enemy, we'll fight the wrong war. Rulers, authorities, and powers of evil. And see, here's what the Apostle Paul's saying. The Apostle Paul's saying is not saying we've got to choose to engage in spiritual warfare. He's saying spiritual warfare is a reality. You live, this is the world that you live in. And our lack of recognition of that, especially in the West, where we're, we're so focused on the material things in the world that we can see in front of us, I think has caused us to fight the wrong battle. It's so much easier to fight against people that have a different ideology or a different faith. It's a lot harder to say, what's the lie underneath and what's the system underneath and what's the evil underneath and how do we fight against that instead of against people? It was really fascinating. Paul, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, says that the Satan, the, the Satan or Hasetan is the, the enemy or the ruler of the air. He goes, this is, he rules in this world. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. This is the world that we live in. Here, here's what John's not saying, just to, to clarify. See, the world, as John talks about it, is not the place where our feet stand, but it's the, world, the place where our heart gives allegiance it's a place our heart bows. This world that we live in, we have two rulers. One, his name is Jesus. His kingdom is here. His kingdom is now. And the ruler of the kingdom of the world. Both kingdoms are present right now. So the question isn't which kingdom is here or which kingdom is now. The question is which kingdom are you living in? Which kingdom do you give allegiance to? The way of the enemy or the way of Jesus. It's interesting. If you look at the way that Jesus engaged this battle and the way that he fought this enemy, it's summarized probably most succinctly and brilliantly in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, in you, South Fellowship Church, me, we were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, but God made us alive Say, made us, alive. made us alive, together with him, 
having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here's, let's zoom out a little bit. The weapon of Jesus is the cross. His enemy is rulers and authorities that perpetuate and stimulate evil. His victory entails the canceling of sin, the extermination of guilt and shame, that our debts have not just been crossed out, but they've literally been erased and done away with, and that the enemy has been disarmed. But he's not gone yet. You know that, and I know that. And his whispers have the tendency to catch a foothold in our heart, don't they? But that's the enemy. Guilt, shame, evil. And if we never identify the right enemy, we will never fight the right war. Luckily, the words of Martin Luther are true. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Somebody say amen. That's great news. But in order for a movement to happen, an enemy has to be clear. And our enemy is evil. Our enemy is the present darkness that infiltrates God's good world. Second thing for movement to take place. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel 14. The men of the garrison, they hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. His armor bearer says, I'm I'm with you heart and soul. Jonathan says, come after me. And any movement that starts to take place not only has an enemy to fight, but a leader to follow. Has an enemy to fight, and it has a leader to follow. So Jonathan says, hey, follow me, and people start coming out of hiding. They start coming out of shame. They start coming out of guilt, and they, and they join in. So the Israelites, their leader, this war, this battle was Jonathan. Our leader is... Jesus, thank you for not saying Ryan, or the elders, or our leaders, because, man, I can't hold a candle to Jesus. And luckily, he is our corporate leader. He's the head of this church. He is who we are all seeking after, following after, and he's the one who says, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll I'll teach you how to live in this world that I've created, that I know, that I've wired, that I've designed. See, the early church, they had this invitation that they spread out to everybody. It was not come and be part of the church. The invitation was come and follow Jesus. Come and be a disciple, which literally meant an apprentice or a learner, somebody who who took on the teachings and the way of Jesus. See, Jesus wasn't asking or calling people to agree with him. 
He was inviting people to become like him. He was inviting people to live in the same way that he lived, to do the same things that he did. So the question we need to wrestle with is um, not just about what it means to believe in Jesus, but what does it look like to live a life that resembles Jesus? It's a lot easier to be a convert than it is to be a disciple. See, becoming a disciple is not about being religious. It's about becoming a student of the Jesus way of life. Learning what to do in situations that would be the same things that Jesus would do if he were in the situation we were in. What do we do when we become angry? What do we do when we're wronged? What do we do when people don't hold up their end of the bargain? What do we do when somebody accidentally rear-ends us? Happened to me this week. What, what do we do? How do we live in the way of Jesus in our everyday life? Here's the thing. It's different than going to church. It's different than going to church. It's not just checking an attendance. Gathering together is a great thing, but when we talk about being a disciple, we are not talking about going to church. In fact, did you know that if you were to read all the way through the New Testament, you would find one place that the word church is used, or sorry, through the Gospels, one place where Jesus says the word church. And it's this, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, where he says to Peter, I will build my church. But what's really interesting is that word wasn't even translated as church until 1382, the very first time. And so in 1382, roughly 1300, 1400 years after Jesus, they started to take this word, ekklesia in the Greek, and instead of translating it assembly or congregation, they used this derivative of a German word, kirsch, which meant the house of God. And they translated it church. But for the New Testament church, they would never have thought of a place. They would have thought of a people. They would have said, you can't be a part of, the, you, can, you can't go to church, you can only be a part of the church. In fact, William Tyndale, when he did his English translation of the New Testament, changed five to seven key phrases, key words, key ideas, and this was one of them. Instead of translating it church, he translated it congregation, assembly, movement. Eventually, it got him killed. But the church moved away from this grassroots movement to become a centralized location. Nothing's wrong with going to church. I think we should gather together as the church, but we have to view it as bigger than just checking a box. It's embracing a way of life. Are we living in the way of Jesus? To become a disciple is not to confirm that we agree with a statement of faith. It's not to sign our name. It's to submit our life. Say, Jesus, I want to learn what it means to live in your way. Jesus, I want to learn what it looks like to, to imitate you, the way that you use your money and the way that you use your time and the things that you valued and the way that you lived your life. So let me just pause and say, so in your journey of being a disciple, if you are, how are you doing? Are, are you becoming more like Jesus? Maybe we could think about it in this way. Let me give you four directions to think of discipleship in. 
And if you're a note taker, write this down. Just, just to go back this week and say, I just want to search my heart. or God, I want you to search me. Um, upward. What does your life with God look like? Your, your life in devotion, your life in scripture, your life praising Jesus, getting to know Jesus, uh, upward life. Secondly, inward. How's the health of your soul? Do you have built into the rhythm of your, of your life, of your week, of your month, Sabbath, rest, silence, solitude, pause? one thing to hear me talk about the love of the Father, the overtures of the Father's love toward you. It's a whole nother thing to hear them from God yourself. How's the health of your soul? Upward, inward, together. Part of living in the rhythm of Jesus is embracing life that moves in community together. So, so when we have something like a <coughs> church picnic, that may not be your thing. I don't care. I just want to be with you. I want us to be together. And dinners for eight, you may be terrified. Maybe, the, maybe we'll have like an introvert's dinners for eight. <laughs> Can I go? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just, if you're terrified to go to dinner with eight people you don't know, find somebody to go with you and embrace the awkwardness together. But it's more than just dinners for eight. It's part of being a community together, linking arms and hearts together, that we would live life together. That's why life groups aren't a program that we do, but a rhythm that we engage with, upward to Jesus, inward to our own souls, linked arms together, and then together looking through. God, what would you do through our lives? Maybe, maybe it's an invitation for you to to serve in a different way, to give in a different way. What type of impact is God having on you, through you, for his glory in his world? Upward, inward, together, and through. These are the rhythms of discipleship, gospel transformation, life-giving community, visible faith. This is what we're all about, because as Dallas Willard said, we fail to see movement in the West today because we are not adequately teaching people how to be and how to make disciples. We're great at making converts, but teaching people how to live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, and the rhythms of Jesus, so that their lives are actually changed, that's a different thing. And any movement has a leader, and our leader is Jesus, and his invitation is, not believe in me, follow me. Follow me. Do what I do in the way that I do it with the heart that I have. And so this story, 1 Samuel chapter 14, at the very end of this section, gets really weird. I mean, you see Saul come out of hiding. He engages in battle, and Jonathan steps into this battle, has a little victory, and then the rest of the Israelite army, they join in. And at that point, the Israelite army starts killing itself. Which if you're an Israelite, or the Philistine army starts killing itself, which if you're an Israelite is really good news because you have two swords, maybe some jujitsu training that I'm not aware of, but you have two swords to your name and you're going against a pretty strong, valiant army. And I've just wrestled with this question this week. If Jonathan doesn't step in, does God intervene? 
If Jonathan doesn't cross the valley, does God still win the victory? If Jonathan sits and cowers in fear, what story do we read? And we don't know. We don't have the answers to all those questions. We simply know that when Jonathan moves, God moves with him. That when Jonathan steps in, God shows up. Will you write this down in your bulletin if you're a note taker? Your life matters. Your life matters. When it comes to movement, your life matters. But God's part is essential. Your life matters. But God's part, God's movement is absolutely essential. And he cares and he's with us, not only because we have an enemy to fight, which is evil. We have a leader to follow. His name is Jesus. But we have also a mission to fulfill. So we're back to the question, how do we fight the battle? As we identified that the evil is our enemy, the, the systems or the powers of darkness that are very real in our world today, even though we can't see them. The question lingers, though, how do we fight this battle? How do we engage in this war? And I let that hang to come back to it to close our time with it. There's three ways that we fight this battle. Number one, we fight it by really believing the greatest commandment that Jesus ever gave, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way we fight. Did you know that the church, before the church ever had a building, before the church ever had a Bible, the church had a command? Let that sink in. Before buildings, before Bibles, the church had a command. And the command from Jesus was really, really clear. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know. You want to create a wave? You want your life to matter? You want your life to impact? You want your life to influence? You want your life to change Littleton, Centennial, Colorado, Denver, to the ends of the earth? Jesus tells us how. By this, when you love, all people will know. You're my disciples. If you have love for one another. Notice the synchronicity between the enemy that we fight, the enemy who is spiritual and evil, and the way that we fight. We fight with the weapons of love, of goodness that reflect our God. That's how Jesus builds his church slash movement slash congregation slash gathering. That's how he does it. So how do we fight? We love. Number two, Jesus lays it out clear before he ascends to heaven. Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples. People who live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Disciples of all nations. So we don't get to choose who we love. We just get to choose how we love. You know that, right? You've never laid eyes on somebody that you were not called by God to love, and you never will. You don't get to choose who, you just get to choose how. We don't get to choose who we have a heart to make disciples of. We just get to choose 
how and where God would call us. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. We invite people to become a part of his body, which is symbolized through baptism. We teach people to obey his way and become followers of Jesus that forgive when wronged, when free ourselves of anger, that become a light on a hill. And we invite people to trust in the power of our great God. How do we fight the battle? Love, disciple, and we step into this reality that the story that God is telling from the beginning is a story of his goodness of his goodness, and that he is at work right now. He is on mission, and if you want to be a part of his wave, we've got to join his mission. His mission is love. His mission is teach people how to live in the way of Jesus. His mission is restoration of all things. Through the blood of Jesus, through the mission of the church, God is actively working to renew his creation, to make all things new because he's that kind of God, because he loves humanity that much, and that is the meta-narrative story of the entire scriptures. So his invitation is join in. Join in. You may go, well, where do I join in? How do I join in? It's really interesting. Our misreading of the Great Commission passage leads to the question. But if we read this right, we never have the question because the invitation in the Great Commission is to make disciples. That's the command of it. Make disciples. The place is going. It's actually a participle. The imperative or the command in the Greek is make disciples. Going, it's a participle. It's a verb. So as you go, wherever you go, whenever you go, in the home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, Live in the way of Jesus and teach people to do the same. If you want to do that in a different country, praise be to God. You're called to do it wherever you are. And it looks like a tree that starts to form where birds find their home in its shade and the beauty and the goodness of his kingdom. One of the things I love about pastoring this church is we're making waves. And it's really good. I think God wants to press on us, though. And I think right now some of our waves are like the waves that you see at Chatfield Reservoir when a speedboat goes by really quick. And if you're in the right place at the right spot with the right boogie board, you might be able to catch it, but good luck. I think he wants to start making more like Pacific Ocean type waves with our lives. Here's some of the waves that I see right now that are so exciting and life to my soul. I see 80 families over at the ELC every single week dropping kids off to be cared for by our church community, by an ELC that, that we run and teachers who love those kids. And I'm starting to ask, what would it look like for us as a church body? to start to add value to the lives, not just of those kids, but of those families? How can we care for those families in a way that points them to Jesus? We serve a few hundred cups of coffee every single day through our coffee shop, Solid Grounds. That's awesome. But what would it look like for that to grow into an even bigger wave that would crash into Littleton, Centennial, Highlands Ranch, Inglewood, wherever? 
What would it look like for it to continue to grow? Um, 70 to 100 families every single week get food from our food bank. How might God use your lives, our lives, not just as a little molecule of water that we can't see on its own, but, but to make a greater, bigger impact for the glory of his name. There's people right now, uh, 18 of you that have opened your homes to host dinners for eight where you'll have a really awkward gathering to the glory of God. Okay, just kidding, it won't be that awkward. But you're opening your home. Why? Because you believe that we're on mission together, that life together is better. And I'm hoping that some of you invite friends who aren't a part of this community of faith to see that we're really not all that weird. Just choose which house you go to really carefully, okay? But I had a chance to meet with um, one of our congregant uh, members, um, Chris Briggs, this week. And she shared with me about her ministry in um, prison fellowship, where a project that she gave to these prisoners who are in school with her overflowed into the lives of the inmates, and six inmates came to faith in Jesus in the last few weeks or few months. And for the first time in a long time, they're going to have a baptism celebration in the jails. That's awesome. That's awesome. Those are, those are the waves that I'm seeing, and I'm just asking, will you jump in? Will you, will you be a part of it? Would you pray and ask God how he might want to use your life for his glory? And here's what I can tell you. You will never, ever regret it because the mission of Jesus and the movement of Jesus is global. It's happening on every corner of the globe. His glory drenches his world. It's historic. We are part of something that has its roots in 2,000 years of history, but even before that, and the followers of Yahweh as the true God. And we're part of something, friends. We're part of a wave that will never, ever end. The church is bigger than this building, praise be to God. And we're not inviting people just to come and worship with us, although that's a beautiful thing. We're inviting people to be part of the kingdom rhythms of our good creator. Live a life that creates with us a wave that makes our city better, that makes our neighborhoods better, that makes our workplaces better, that makes this world a different place because Jesus is that good. And so we pray. Our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth and in our lives as it is in heaven. My prayer for us is that our lives together would create kingdom waves that would impact people for the glory of his name, for their joy as they follow after him, and for the good of our world. Let's pray. In fact, will you stand with me? Will you stand with me? And just close your eyes, and we're going to sing one last just chorus of a song or part of a song. But before we go there, I just want you to have the chance to take a deep breath and to ask God to, to stir in you. What does it look like for, for you to be a part of his movement? An enemy to fight, a leader to follow, a mission to fulfill. Just give you a moment.
Jesus, we, we want to be more than just a little molecule of water that you can't even see, but we want to be part of your wave, your kingdom wave. That we believe you're stirring and we believe the wind is blowing and gathering people, Lord, that we might move and that we might make an impact, not just on one life, but on many, by the glory of your name, for the glory of your name, by the power of your spirit, we would pray, would you, would you make us a wave that would be for the good of the world that you love? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing with me? Oh, for the